<laughs> First x-rays from Uranus detected. <laughs> Hello uh-huh. and... Sorry. Hello and welcome to... <clears throat> oh, God damn it. <laughs> We need to start an intro, Professor. Hello and welcome to another episode of Nerds Amalgamated. I'm the professor and my co-host is the DJ. How are you going, DJ? I'm good. I'm good. I'm just trying to get over the loss of a of a beautiful, beautiful man, the Duke of Edinburgh. So sad. Okay, I'm not going to judge your taste, but okay. <laughs> hey, he hey he was a war he's a war veteran and he's done a lot of th- good things for me for the country for the world and the country like charity and stuff. Yeah, he's also not the uh, least controversial figure in the um, royal family at the moment. Yeah, that's true. Still not as controversial as Prince Andrew, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, he made it to uh, 99, just a couple of months short of getting his own letter from the Queen. <laughs> I wonder whether... Okay, you know how like everybody else, when they turn 100, they get like a special letter, it'd be like gold and white and stuff. If it's in his case and it's the wife, I bet you'd be like a red letter <laughs> or like a pink letter saying... <laughs> Happy Philip, birthday! Man. I want a divorce. <laughs> I want a divorce. I'm sure that's not what the Queen sounds like. Oh, I don't yeah. even. I don't. No. <laughs> you know, I do know what the Queen sounds like. I saw her on TV. <laughs> oh man, I, I can imagine the Christmas message would have been like, "This year, my husband he turned the ninety-nine. He died at the age of ninety-nine. I was going to give him this letter, but now I can't." Uh, they seemed like they were happy together anyway. Yeah. Although, uh, I, I wonder if uh, Prince Philip was the secret to uh, the Queen's longevity. No, we all know she's a lizard person drinking the blood of virgins. <laughs> anyway, DJ, you have the first topic tonight. What's going on? So, we have a new autistic-themed graphic novel by author-illustrator Rebecca Burgess. It's a contemporary novel uh, for the, for the middle grade, and it's called Speak Up. And it tells the story of a autistic girl who finds friendship where she least expects it, and learns how to express her true self in a world where everyone is determined and def- to define her by her differences. Okay, I mean that's a uh, I mean good premise. Though everybody's yeah. though everybody's done that type of premise before, though. Yeah, well, I can only think of a handful of. Um autism books and i can think of there's uh, one series uh the blue bottle mystery i think and the curious case of the dog in the nighttime it was called the blue bottle mystery mystery oh right mystery sorry so i don't think there's a whole lot of them but it's definitely a topic that a theme that's been done before and not in comic form i mean i like the fact that um they're using um book a lot more um, adult novels and graphic novels as well to um, raise awareness for these types of um, situations, which is good. Yeah. So uh, the author for this, uh, Rebecca Burgess, recently saw her graphic novel, How to Ace, uh, which was published by Jessica Kingsley, and the picture book she drew, Wiggles, Stomps, and Sneezes, published this past week. She also creates webcomics such as the period autistic-themed comic The Song Catcher on Tapas, 
and understand the spectrum. Uh, she's a freelance illustrator currently living in Bristol and has worked with the likes of The Guardian, Con- Creative Connection, The Beano, and Crowwood Press. Curiously, though, what do you think of, like, uh, autistic-themed media? Like, do you reckon it's uh, we're seeing a lot of it in the last few years or very little of it and it's kind of growing? I don't think we've seen a whole lot of it in the last few years. What's giving you that idea? I know. I mean, like, uh, I used to remember that there was there used to be a movie called My Name is Sam or something. But, yeah, it was there wasn't much, like, representation in a sense. Okay, I have no idea what that is, so... Uh, my name is Sam. Hang on a second. Uh, okay. Ah, here we go. So, the story of, of, of My Name is Sam, which is, which is based on a book, is about Sean Penn's character. He's got intellectual disability, and he's a single father, and he's fighting a custody battle, basically. And the themes for this uh, was reaching... It was, the issue, it was looking at the um, issues facing adults with intellectual disabilities. Okay. Well, the other thing is autism is a pretty wide spectrum. It goes everywhere from people who had what would have been called Asperger's up until like 10 years ago. Like I've, I'm diagnosed with Asperger's. And then it goes all the way to completely nonverbal people who can't look after themselves. It's all lumped together under one category. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of different perspectives that you can have for autistic media. And not to mention, like, whenever people say, like, oh, this guy's suffering from autism, they always in- automatically connect up to Rain Man. Yeah, like, a lot of people think of Rain Man. Um, More? The good I doctor is one that... I think of Debbie Boy. It's like, oh, hey, Debbie Boy, that looks like you. <laughs> that guy looks like you. They do look a little bit familiar. They're both in the same room. <laughs> autism and how it's... Uh... How, how, how would I put? How would I say this? It's the yeah, how, how think, in, in media. It's in how in media. It's like what? It's a special power, basically. Yeah, you either get you know the Rain Man type, where your autistic character is you know a savant, which isn't necessarily true for all autistic people, or you have the non-verbal only communicates by drawing type. But um, the I think a lot of people don't realize that how many sort of, I don't know the right term, uh, well, <laughs> like high-functioning autistic people who pass for neurotypical. There's a lot of them around, and it's one of those conditions where a high-functioning person in regular society can get by most of the time, but occasionally things just go too far and things don't work out. And I think um, there's not a lot of people covering higher functioning autistic characters who aren't, you know, the savant type. But I see that the author of this, Rebecca Burgess, has written a bunch of other books about uh, autism and asexuality and sensory differences. So they seem, looking at their Amazon ratings, they are pretty highly regarded. So I think she's got the pedigree to be able to handle this delicately. What's your biggest concern, though, when it comes to um, mediums covering um, issues of autism and and whatnot? Mostly just the people who, uh, who treat it like a superpower. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, most autistic people that I've met don't want to be treated like they have some superpower. They just want to be treated like people. And 
being autistic might make them good at something that neurotypical people aren't, but it doesn't mean they're not, you know, regular people with their own interests and hobbies when they're not. Yeah, it just it yeah. reminded me of um the one of the recent movie um the the Predator the which is a which is basically a reboot of the Predator series where basically the young kid in the um in the movie uh he he has autism and he could he could uh, uh somehow magically translate the language the uh, predators were talking <laughs> yeah that's a bit silly I know. Like, some autistic people do have a talent for language but being able to pick up an alien language that you've never heard before and suddenly learn how to speak it that's ridiculous yeah and uh, he, he, so i'm looking at the controversy section of it here here it is so the predator also suggests uh, not only that autistic persons who exhibit savant qualities and other forms of neurodiversity are or were advantageous, but that they represent a forward step in the human evolutionary path. Yeah, well, you know, forward's debatable. Whether, excuse me, dog, would you please? <laughs> can you hear that? Yep, I can hear yeah, that. My neighbor's dog's going off. Anyway, um... <laughs> Maybe not a forward step per se, because that has come to kind of bug me that, you know, it's autistic people saying that they're a forward step in evolution or whatever. It's come to bug me because, you know, you're putting down neurotypical people. Like a lot of autistic people have gone their whole lives being put down by neurotypical people. Now just to turn around and put down neurotypical people. <laughs> and that kind of bugs me a little. Yeah. It's not something we should be doing but an alternative path you know um there's a lot of sociological theories about what different uh, neurodiversities are in a evolutionary context you know maybe autistic people are better at inventing you know um new technology and by inventing their new technology autistic people then support their own community and improve their community's survivability. Just like there's a theory I've read that the reason some people are gay is because then the gay people take on a um, sort of fatherly role to children, all the children in the tribe, rather than, you know, being focused on their own kids. (laughs) So there's, you know, a lot of sociological theories on what each different neurodiversity represents and what the advantages of it. But I don't think you can really say one is more obviously the, you know, a better step, uh, the next step. Yeah. The response to that thought, by the way, interesting enough. So he said here, according to scientific op- opinions reported by Sci-Fi Wire, such a thesis would have some issues. Also, the New York Post review ends by stating, but worse is a plot line involving autism and a dubious scientific theory that will leave parents fuming. Uh, in a review by Uproarix, um, does it Emma's, say what the theory is? Uh, I think that I think the hu- the forward step of the human evolutionary path is the okay. theory. But um, in a, so in a review for Uproarix, um, Uproarix, Emma Stefanski calls the film's depiction of autism maybe the worst thing I've ever seen in a film this year, and scolds the filmmakers for this depiction of mental illness. Especially the idea that autism equals really smart. Yeah. But with this, um, w- but back to the um, graphic novel though, with the plot, 
I think it, it, it the message itself is good in terms of they want people to um see her for to they want um people to know her true self. I think the message is good. It's wholesome. Yeah, yeah. We're all still people. Yeah, we're just different people. Yeah, we might not like social situations. It might be something really weird, like a particular texture. Like some autistic people might not like yogurt or woolen jumpers because of the texture or certain sounds. I can't stand the sound of an idling bus engine. But <laughs> really, yeah. Like if I'm sitting in a bus and it's idling, um, it's not as bad now as it used to be. Maybe it's in particular diesel engine buses because I think a lot of the city buses now are natural gas. But if I'm sitting in a, a bus with that particular type of engine and it, it's just idling, it really, you know, rattles my brain and hurts and I don't like it. So, you know, there's things like that that don't often get covered in uh, media about autistic people. Yeah. I would like to be interested in what context would they put this, uh, put the character through to make her express her true self. Like, would it be in the home or in the school or? Yeah. So it's targeted at, I think you said middle school? Yeah. Middle grade. Yeah. Middle grade. Okay. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but um, it, I think it's probably going to cover school. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, we're all still people. We're not just computers or whatever. It's, so I think, um, yeah, I think Rebecca is probably a good person to write this and she's got other good stuff about this. I would like um, to see the, the one context I would like to see uh, Rebecca uh, talk about would be um, trying to express her true self in the cyber world because or the internet is internet. Yeah. Internet can be a very dangerous place, especially with well, people, especially with vulnerable people. It can be, but it can also be a tool for people who can't express themselves in the real world. Yeah. I used to be better at expressing myself online in text than I was in person. Sometimes I still am. You know, I've learned a lot and I can pass as a neurotypical person pretty well. I've actually um, been introduce to someone they find out that i've got asperger's and then they ask my girlfriend if it's true that i do because i fit in so well and like yeah i fit in well because it's um you're only meeting me for a few hours of the day you don't know that i you know that i can only handle that for a few hours a day i can't i don't like going out partying in pubs because the music's too loud the uh people are too touchy and close and but Apart from that, you'd think I'm a regular person as long as you didn't, you know, have to live with me. <laughs> so I think it would also be interesting to see a perspective of a autistic character who is masking well. Yeah. But this um, character does seem to be a younger one, so maybe their masking skills aren't fully developed yet. Yeah. I've got um, – so from a website, I've uh... – I picked up there saying the differences between the middle grade and young adults. So middle grade is for readers between age of between the age of eight to twelve, and young adult is the age of thirteen to eighteen. Okay, All right, that makes sense. But the uh, the thing I'm I'm I have to um we have to um think about is when is the is it is 
middle grade the right age to explain to kids about nuances and stuff, or is it the young adult yeah. age? I think it's uh, that's a good age to introduce people to, you know, the concept of autism and Asperger's and, well, autism, because they decided to roll Asperger's into autism, which a lot of people I met don't particularly agree with. But, you know, it is all related, I think. it's. I do agree. It's different... Uh, different presentations of severity, but I think also it's a very broad spectrum. So, you know, if you say someone's autistic, like I said, it ranges from someone who fits in so well that people don't know they're autistic to people who are completely nonverbal and... extremely disabled. Um, but I think eight years old is a good time to introduce people to that because you've got to, you know, you've got kids going to school and they're going to be meeting autistic people. It's not hugely common. Um, what's the number? Something like 3% of uh, kids having, um, kids suffering from autism and stuff. Yeah, actually autism spectrum Australia, according to the first result on Google, uh, estimates one in 70 people. So, um, you know, one in 70 people, there's a good chance that your kids are going to meet a autistic person in their class of 30. And I, so I, I think it's a good age to be introducing these concepts. That's fair enough. Fair enough. Gotta admit, this is a very heavy topic. It is. It's hard to handle correctly. It's such a broad topic that it's... Um, you know, you can't cover every autistic person in one character. There's going to be elements where your character represents a particular person and elements where it doesn't. So, I mean, the, you know, give um, it a go. Yeah. I, 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 oh, sorry. Give sorry, it a go. I, you just don't expect it to represent every autistic person you're ever going to meet. I was going to say, like, you could try, like, maybe a late, like, uh, I was going to say maybe layer the character in a sense. Well, again, you don't, you can't do that because of the way autism presents. You don't necessarily say that all high functioning autistic people are going to have particular symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. It could be, you know, it's high functioning autistic people are more likely to fit in a certain uh, space of syndrome of, of symptoms but not all of them are present in every high-functioning autistic person. Same with low-functioning autistic people. Yeah. So it's a very hard thing to describe and cover, and I think that's another advantage of having more autistic media, because particularly if it's by or in consultation with people who have autism, you can get you know a variety of characters you can pick from that a particular autistic person might identify with and be able to learn from. Mm. So moving along to a more delicious topic. <laughs> The Chinese police have just wrapped up Operation Chicken Drumstick. Ooh. I love that name. <laughs> let me guess. Let me, let me guess. Operation Chicken Drumstick. Uh, let me guess. They're going to rid the rid the country of China of KFC. No. Uh, nothing to do with KFC, DJ. Although it is possible that the people involved here do enjoy KFC. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the gaming stereotype. What it refers to... 
is a big bust that they've just pulled off arresting a video game cheat syndicate. So working with Tencent, the Chinese uh, police department, the Kunshan Public Security Bureau, arrested these key members of a particular group and seized a bunch of assets, millions of dollars of cryptocurrency, luxury cars. (laughs) Yeah, so these people are hacking games and selling the cheat online and making enough money to buy luxury cars, multiple luxury cars going by the image they released. Jesus Christ. And that seems to be just one particular... Uh, one particular person. Yeah, I'm seeing the uh, the the page. So they basically sold a, a cheat program for for a certain game of sorts. <laughs> yeah, lots of games. Oh, is it lots of games? Okay. Yeah. So I, if you look on the internet, you can find someone who will sell you a cheat for almost any game, particularly popular multiplayer games. One of the big ones has always been PUBG. Really? Huh. I mean, you would think there'll be more cheat codes for Fortnite and whatnot. Yeah, you know, I haven't actually heard much about Fortnite cheaters. Uh, they do mention that, um, well, Tencent, who helped with the bust, also runs Fortnite and PUBG in China. So presumably those are... Um, presumably most of the people involved here have been cheating on... Tencent owned property. Oh, that explains the Tencent's um, assistance in the whole thing. Yeah. Oh, by the way, for Fortnite, there's um, Aimbot last two years ago. Oh, no, actually, last okay. year, actually. There yeah. was a I Fortnite... don't doubt that they're out there, but yeah. I remember PUBG being notorious for cheats, yeah. especially if you played on the uh, Chinese servers. And you might remember the um, they just have better PCs joke. <laughs> That was that advertising campaign that Intel had for that laptop or whatever it was in China was referring specifically to cheating in PUBG (laughs) and how the the PC was better so you could cheat better. (laughs) So this, uh, so does this whole um, arrest, um, this whole police raid debunks the theory or (laughs) Um, supports the theory at this point? Yeah, well. You know, millions of dollars. Obviously, people don't pay a whole lot of money for cheats. Uh, One of the examples they have in the articles is PUBG cheats going for, uh, you know, $5 a day. Oh, that's cheap as as chips. Yeah. So that kind of gives you an idea. If this one particular guy was arrested for uh, with $5 million and... Let's assume, based on some of the numbers here, uh, the BBC article mentions subscriptions for $10 a day, 200 a month, so you get a bulk discount. But just you know, think of the magnitude there. To get $5 million out of uh, four years, how many people are paying you for cheats? Oh, man, the, num- the number must be staggering. Yeah, yeah, because PUBG's only been out for four years, so... yeah. Um, uh, the BBC article also mentions Overwatch and Call of Duty Mobile oh. and has a, an overall number for the entire um, entire group, $76 million. 
Oh, yeah. What the hell? Now, it says that the police found and destroyed 17 sheets. I don't know how you destroy it because, you know, you can wreck the hard drive, but everyone you've sold the cheat to has probably still got it out there. Oh, I don't know. It depends of how smart the other the person on the other the consumer is, though. I mean, if they have a yeah, sort, um, if, if they have a copy of the of the thing, they could just replicate it and give it to other players. You know. And how does the subscription work? Is this uh, WinRAR level piracy, or is this Adobe Creative Cloud level piracy? Ah, <laughs> uh, I would say like a WinRAR level would be like. The basic version. <laughs> well, yeah, WinRAR, you just say, I'll pay later, and it keeps working. Yeah. Creative What's... Cloud is a whole big thing because <laughs> it's all running through... Um, cloud function, yeah, yeah. It's all based on the cloud, so I imagine it's harder to crack. I remember back in uni, someone told me uh, they used the cracked version. I've never really been into Adobe products. I, I prefer finding free stuff. Not like pirated free, but free and open source software. Yeah. yeah. So I always used GIMP instead of Photoshop when I could. <laughs> but um, yeah, some someone in uni told me it's not hard to get a crack for it because it's all available on the internet, but it is hard to make the crack. Yeah. Curiously, though, do you reckon this will be consequential to the gaming industry? This whole I hope it scares the... Uh, the cheaters back underground. I hope fewer people are willing to cheat because of the risk that they, you know, might be arrested. Obviously, they made bucket loads of money. So it's not all bad for them if they found some way to keep some of the money, if they don't spend too much time in jail. But maybe it'll help, you know, the small time hackers and stop them from spreading their cheats around on the internet. Yeah, but then let's see. Okay, the thing with cheaters is. They're like steroids, you know. And the ste- well, one thing I've learned when it comes to steroids and stuff is, if uh, if they if the um, FDA or the doping agency have caught have uh, sniffed out a particular steroid, yeah, the steroid um, the, the steroid makers will find will make even more innovative ways to do, go around the um, the doping. And that's um, why Russia is banned from the Olympics. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because they had state-sponsored doping. But yeah. anyway, DJ, you seem to know a lot about steroids. <laughs> hey, I read the paper a lot, okay? That explains the hair loss, actually. <laughs> Gee, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but, but the point I'm trying to make is... Is that even if um I even if I grant you the fact that this will put the cheaters back in, into their hidey holes, they will cut. They will find a way to more innovative way to get around the whole Tencent and other and law agencies to avoid being caught again. I mean, of course they you, will. It's an arms race. Yeah, but you know this is a big blow for the. The hackers. Hopefully it slows them down for a bit. Maybe we'll have a, you know, six months of less prolific cheaters. Maybe. I can't guarantee that, but it would be nice to see that be the case. How again, how, from a game developer's point of view, seeing this type of news, does it um, hinder oh, your progress? I'm in the wrong line of work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> does it hinder your process, uh, your progress when it comes to like, Seeing games, um, going, seeing games being corrupted like this. 
it's upsetting because, you know, while single player cheats, I have no problem with. They're really interesting. I'm I enjoy reading, you know, reverse engineering blogs, but this really hurts the online community of a game. And at the same time, it also kind of like ruins the artistic vision of the devs, if that makes any sense. The developers have gone in and made you this product and often blood, sweat and tears have gone into it. And, uh, you know, someone's hacking or cheating and it is affecting the intended play experience. And that sounds really bloody pretentious. And I don't mean it that way. Like, you know, part of art is that you get whatever you take away from it. Yeah. But it also makes me unhappy to see people who want to play the game in the rules being affected by this, especially if it's a smaller game with, you know, an indie game with only a few servers. Hackers can, a small number of hackers can ruin an indie game for everyone. A big enough game, you change servers, you'll probably not find a hacker in the new one. But if you've only got half a dozen servers to begin with, then yeah, that just ruins it. You don't need that many hackers to have a massive impact on the community. The other thing uh, which is interesting about this whole story is this also shows how how Tencent can move without impunity. I don't get what you mean there. As in, like, they can work with police officers and just, like, crack down and stuff. Like, you would think, like, oh. games companies and law agencies don't really work hand in hand, but in this case, it's like... Yeah, tell that to Steve Jackson Games. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, yes, um... This hurts Tencent because people won't buy the loot boxes if they aren't playing the game. So, yeah, this hurts Tencent. I can see why they aren't happy with this. So it makes sense that they'd be going after the hackers here. Now, if they were going after mod tool creators for a single-player game, that's just a, you know, a waste of time. Some devs have do go after, you know, single-player mod developers rockstar do uh, because the security model in gta online is so flawed that single player cheats can influence multiplayer <laughs> but you know if someone wants to affect their own single player game let them if it's someone interfering with other players let them but on the other hand 10 cents likely doing this to sell more loot boxes because by having more players they sell more boxes uh, if people are hacking loot boxes to get better weapons or in GTA case, you can quite easily hack in money in different ways. And it seems like every time Rockstar patches that, someone fix finds a way around it. So it kind of sounds like it's a case of sour grapes for Tencent. No, it's just um, a case of making money. Uh, no, I know, but like, it's like, oh, they're making money. They're, they're being rich off us. We're being sour about it. We're gonna use our we're gonna use our police power. Company, any company, like if anyone's cutting into a company's profits, of course they're gonna go after them. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Apple goes after people who let you do repairs of your devices. I'm surprised they haven't even they they haven't even touched Dank Pods after his uh, escapades with the iPods. Well, that's a much older product that was already easy to 
modern upgrade. Like the newer iPhones, Apple is absolutely anti-repair. We're getting onto a bit of a different topic, but with newer Apple products, they are much harder to repair than the old couple of uh, generations of iPod. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And Apple will go after anyone who threatens their profit by allowing you to repair your iPhone. Fair enough. So, you know, it's not just Tencent having sour grapes. It's anyone, anywhere would do this. That's what corporations are about. Oh, there goes my theory of corporations being big, giant, faceless faceless entities that, that won't give a damn about um the, about what happens to their product. Oh, well. <laughs> no, they give a damn as long as... Um, well, they don't give a damn as long as you're not taking money from Fair enough. The problem is often, you know, cracking your device so that you can install Linux on it or whatever would take away that profit. So then they get upset, have a little bit of a tanty and take you to court. Nintendo will even do it even if you're not threatening that profit. Have a look at all the Nintendo fan games that have been shut down. Oh, let's not go there. But um, with uh, but back to uh, China and and Tencent games. So, do you reckon the future is bright for Tencent now they've they, they've uh, done this? <laughs> the future's always been bright for Tencent. Oh, They're yeah. one of the few publishers who can publish in China, one of the biggest markets on earth, if not the biggest. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's likely the biggest because of the population, but I'm not don't have the numbers to hand. So, you know, <laughs> sitting pretty there. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, moving a little bit across the ocean to Japan, have you ever done kirigami, DJ? Uh, no, I don't think I have. Yeah, I've only ever done origami, but the difference is kirigami allows you to cut the paper. Ooh. Yeah, so some researchers at Penn State have come up with methods of using kirigami to create 3D nanoscale structures. Nanofabrication is incredibly difficult because it's so damn small, but they've come up with this idea of using their substrate with microscopic cuts and microscopic folds to create 3D structures. They would have to be really, really careful, though. Why? Because it's nano. And? Yeah, I know, because it's very, very careful. Like, one small misstep would damage a whole whole structure. Yeah, you need incredible precision. Yep. Yeah, like with um, with CPU creation, you use, you know, it's getting to the point where the wavelength of light is a limiting factor in the size of the parts that can be made in CPUs. So the transistor size, usually. Um, and wrecking a single batch of CPUs is, you know, 100 grand. Oh, I'd hate to be the uh, the person that authorized it, though. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, the tiniest fleck of dust can ruin your batch. Yep. So in this case, they figured out that if they stretch their structural film, nothing really happens. But then they go and cut the film in particular ways and stretch and it pops up and pops into different shapes. So, oh, do you remember that video, um, A Boy and His Atom, I think? It's an animation done by, um, was it an IBM lab using um, electron microscopy and, you know, individual atoms? Yeah, the uh, world's smallest movie. Yeah, Yeah, I remember that one. (laughs) Yeah, put that in the show notes. Yep. Could this be the world's smallest pop-up book? 
<laughs> oh, that would be <laughs> that would be funny just to imagine reading it to your kids. Like, okay, kids, I'm gonna show you the world's smallest pop up book. Like, <laughs> yeah, and just wheel in like building size, <laughs> um. electron microscope. <laughs> yeah. just, to, just to see the book. Like, okay, C spot run. <laughs> <laughs> flick the page you're like oh crap i destroyed the book <laughs> <laughs> and then you accidentally paper cut an atom and destroy the universe <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh no so uh what the um professor daniel lopez uh, he's the penn state liang professor of electrical engineering and computer science reckons that his team can do with this uh, with applications is sensors that integrate with the human brain, um, parts that can change shape, tiny, you know, nanoscale parts that can change shape and configuration when uh, exposed to certain heat or chemical conditions. And his next uh, project with this is to work on materials that are one atom thick. Oh, wow. Yeah. And also to work on uh Piezoelectric kirigami. I gotta admit, though, this type of um, this type of work would be very, very beneficial to uh, in in the case of medicine. Imagine making um, a whole new set of arteries using this. Oh, we're talking smaller than that. Oh, but actually, make, make it even. Uh, yeah, actually, now that you mention it, imagine making a, a whole new set of nerve endings. Yeah, maybe nerve endings. You know, maybe even. Uh, Repairing brain structure, you know, creating synapses, maybe. Yeah. Although we are, we we will be treading onto a reprogramming ter- therapy. Uh, therapy. Hmm. A uh, nanoscale thing that detects when you're getting too angry and disconnects the. Uh, uh, shoot, what part of the brain is that? The amygdala. For emotion. Yeah, like it folds up in a way that then like cuts your amygdala off until you calm down. <laughs> so that you can't like go into a rage and punch someone. The uh the frontal lobe. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so you know, it's this is a really cool concept. Uh a few years ago we actually spoke about robots using origami on, you know, human scales. Origami robot parts. <laughs> oh, that would be yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, I remember the specific one we spoke about was origami suction cup. That could be used to pick up unusually shaped objects. That's right. We did speak about uh, Kirigami um, a while ago about uh, the art of c- the, the applying robotics to cutting paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember that. That was a yeah. fun episode. So the team also included Zhu Zhang from Carnegie Mellon University, Hao Gang Kai from New York University, uh, Leo Medina and H. Espinoza from Northwestern University, and Vladimir Askiuk from the National Institute of Standards and Technology. This is really cool. Like probably like ninety percent of new tech, it kind of goes nowhere. But I want to see what they can do with this and how they can apply it. Well, besides besides um in the medical field, where else can you see this sort of uh, tech being made into? Like I would like to see this in the in the three D printing aspect. Like, can you imagine uh, Kirigami used? Uh, with, with with 3D printing. Sort of on like 
a human scale. You would, uh, do you mean, you'd use a 3D printer type device to cut and fold the paper? Yeah. Or the, uh, or, or just the material? Even, yeah, or just to even, like, make, um, st- like, machine parts using the um, yeah. technology just to, like, okay, you, we've got the right uh, structure, just need a full, just need a 3D printer, and that's it. Yeah, well, there's a lot of places where nano could be used that it isn't because it's difficult and infeasible. But it's only difficult and infeasible now. You know, we don't know when the next ferry crew is going to be. The ancient Romans had steam engines, but it was infeasible to make one big enough to actually do work. So they were just toys. All right, then. Moving along, we'll take a short break for an ad, and then we'll be back with our nerdful things and our shout-outs. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So DJ, what nerdful things have you done this? I have been playing the new map on Among Us. Oh. Uh. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. It's better than the Snyder Cut, okay? Better than watching the Snyder Cut. Yeah, at least you're not talking about Snyder Cut. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 it's funny you mentioned that, though, because I was going on Twitter the other day and someone said that, oh, we, I saw this the third time with my girlfriend. I'm going like, you brave, brave man watching it with your girlfriend. It's 12 hours of your life. You're never going to get back. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I mean, props to him using it as a date night with his girlfriend, though. Props to the guy. So, but yeah, with Among Us, so they introduced a new map, which is the airplane map, and it is huge, very huge. How huge? Uh, bigger than the bigger than the two maps that were originally made, like combined, uh, or just in general. Just in general. Just in general. Okay. Uh, the. The cool parts about it is the the use of ladders, and the frame rate is so much smoother now as well. Uh, but with the map, oh man, there's some really cool bits to it. They've they've introduced some new uh, tasks, such as getting a mobile reception outside of an airplane. <laughs> and the best, the way they did it was so you control the mobile phone um, to to get the signal. It's like you know how in the old days where you hold hold the mobile phone up in the air and trying to get a good yep. signal, yeah, like something like that. <laughs> uh, if you can also climb up and down ladders as well, and you can see both of their hands as you're doing it. Okay, which is awesome. Um, what else is there? Um, in the chat window, there's a there's now a chat wheel where you can automatically do accusations of of people like, oh, I suspect this guy of doing this, or. <laughs> This guy killed me, uh, uh, or uh, let's go. Let let's do an emergency meeting and vote this guy out, which is really so cool. Better uh, auto prompt chats. Yeah, better auto prompt chats. Better fr- uh, frame rate when it comes to uh, animation. 
the map design looks really cool. My biggest grief with it with the map design though is when you lock your door and you have to swipe your key card, it doesn't swipe smoothly and you have to do it like five or six times to get it correctly. Well, like isn't that an original challenge in the original maps? In the original map, yeah, but then like even if you do it smoothly in the first few first few times, it you get right. Um it's it comes true. And but then if you try it again in the in this new map, it's like nah, it's not working. You gotta do it extra slow. Okay. I think you're probably just not any good at a deep. <laughs> uh, um what else? Uh, what's the other stuff that's been that's good in this one? Um as I said, the tasks have been up. The task being updated is pretty good. Uh, we, uh, I've been actually tr- um, playing with a couple of people, and we've introduced some new modes to it, and which is hilarious. So one of the modes was we played the captain mode. So which is basically every one of us wear captain's uniforms, and we all say captain, 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 <laughs> captain, captain, <laughs> and like. And so, uh, and so if they find a body, they report the body. So, so captain, what happened? Um, what happened here? And um, you have to respond by saying, "Oh, I found, I, I found Captain uh, John here. He uh, passed away in a very uh, nice manner." Right. <laughs> it's it's so fun. It, it was chaotic. It was very chaotic. So, what do you rate the new mode? Um, I would rate this um this new map uh four out of five. Okay. Yeah, it's big. It's it's big. Uh, there is a lot of t- there. There is a lot of tasks you have to do. Um, certain sections of the map are very cu- are cumbersome to go to. Like for example, in the normal in the other maps, it's easy to go to the to the uh, meeting room and press the emergency meeting button. Here, it's just basically you have to go through a lot of stairs, a lot of ladders just to get there, and it's very easy to get lost in that map. Very very easy. But it's but it's a good challenge, nonetheless. Yep. How about you, Professor? What have you what notable thing have you done? Um, I've been playing Ravenfield. Well, it's sort of a love letter to uh, the original Battlefield games with massive, you know, great big maps, huge numbers of uh, units. Like I can run it up to something like three hundred. Uh, Units on the map before my computer starts chugging down below thirty FPS. <laughs> so, which battlefield exactly are they uh, doing a love letter to? Uh, just the early ones. Okay. So, nine forty-five Battlefield Two, probably um, because of helicopters, which weren't introduced until no wait, they were in Vietnam. But yeah, um, it feels a lot like those, uh, you know, the nineteen forty-five games. Yeah, I used to love playing Battlefield two and three. Or is it three and four? Yeah, three, three and four. Were my, were my, were my favorite um, Battlefield okay. games. Well, those are different. This feels more like forty-five and two. Okay, because it doesn't have the regenerating health. Um, there's a lot of you know interesting things that changed. Talk about it for a while, uh, but you know I love the scale of this. That it's so huge. Um, the graphics. Uh, you know, fairly cartoony. I think the biggest weak point is that there's no multiplayer. But if you're just looking for big, chaotic, um, you know, mega battles with hundreds of troops aside, this is it. Seeing the uh, trailer for this, and look, the whole red versus blue aesthetic just screams Halo so much. Red versus blue has been a thing for years before that was a Halo thing. 
Okay. Biggest flaw you've encountered besides the uh, no multiplayer option? Um, the equipment's uh, a bit limited, but there's a pretty healthy Steam Workshop with equipment from new maps, equipment from different eras. It's, uh, yeah, all, all pretty good and all what I expected really going into it. Does it include the whole knife animation as well? Uh, you know, I don't think I've got an MLA kit, so I couldn't say. So, uh, how many nerdy beanies out of five would you give this game out of? Um, 3.75 out of five. Okay. The lack of multiplayer really hurts. This would be a great LAN party game, uh, just like the original Battlefield 1945 was. Yeah. But, you know, it's still under development, so maybe one day. So, moving along to our shout-outs. We found out on the 4th of this month who the two final crew members for the SpaceX Civilian Inspiration 4 mission will be. They are Chris Sembrowski and Dr. Sian Proctor, joining Jared Isaacman and Haley Arkino on the mission. The mission is aiming for a launch date of September 15th, launching from 39A at Kennedy Space Center. The crew are going to be given full astronaut training by SpaceX. The uh, interesting thing with the... uh to select uh, the final two is uh, Sembrowski. He is a Lockheed Martin employee and an Air Force veteran. Veteran. He was selected from nearly 72,000 entries in the contrib- in a contributing fundraising campaign for St. Jude. Okay. And Proctor... That's a good way to hide it out. Yeah. Yeah, he uh, first heard about the mission from an ad during this year's Super Bowl event. <laughs> he said, "He goes. Uh, this is this was kind just kind of intriguing." He told uh, New York, the New York Times, and so it's like, "All right, I'll donate to St. Jude and throw my name in the hat to see what happens." <laughs> and uh, Cyan Proctor, she's a geoscientist, a science communication specialist, and analog astronaut. Uh, she secured her seat after winning. What's a- analog astronaut mean? Um. Well, no, it's, it's not digital. <laughs> uh, analog astronaut is a person who conducts activities in simulated space conditions. Okay. But yeah, she won her seat after winning a contest sponsored by Isaacman's e-commerce company, uh, which the contest required all entrants to design an outlo- online store for a shift for payment software and then tweet a video describing their f- space fantasies. And her excitement was was palpable in an interview, um, which she says, it's like opening up a chocolate bar and seeing the golden ticket to Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. <laughs> yes, I bet it would be. <laughs> and on the 5th of April, we have the 5th anniversary of the HTC Vive. It's a virtual reality headset developed by HTC and Valve. So the first commercial version was released in 2016. Yeah, I'm pretty happy that uh, HTC and Valve made their own VR products because once, um, you know, once Oculus sold out to Facebook, I knew the drama was going to happen eventually, and it turns out it did. What was the bit? What was the uh, narrative though? Was well, it just like- Facebook claimed that no, of course we're not going to be evil, but then they were. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. They were. They were, they were like. They were just like holding people to ransom, just like, all right, we need your face, we need your Facebook account into this, and give us your password. Yeah. So after it released in April, by November 2016, uh, HTC announced that they were able to sell the Vive at a profit, and that sales were higher than 140,000. Then on the 6th of April, we have the 20th anniversary of 
the European release of Pokemon Gold and Silver. These are the second generation of Pokemon games, released in 1999, featuring 100 new species of Pokemon. Then on the 8th of April, we have another anniversary, the 20th anniversary of Dr. Mario <laughs> So the, the game is an enhanced remake of the original Dr. Mario, released for the NES and Game Boy in 1990. So you've played this, haven't you? Uh, no, I haven't, actually. Neither have I. I hear a lot about it. Like, I've played it for like a couple of minutes, so I'm not even sure I know how to play it. I could figure it out, but yeah, From- there's, um, the goal is to uh, clear the board of viruses, which rather <laughs> useful this year. <laughs> Although, mind you, from the gameplay um, photography I've seen, uh, all I'd all say is basically, it's like Tetris. Yeah, it does look a lot like Tetris. Then for our anniversary, sorry, remembrances, on the 5th of April 19, 1866, we have Thomas Hodgkin, a British physician, one of the most prominent pathologists of his time, and a pioneer in preventative medicine. He is best known for the first account of Hodgkin's disease, a form of lymphoma, in 1832. In 1821, he went to France, where he learned to use a stethoscope, which was a recent invention at the time. Although he first described the Hodgkin lymphoma in 1830 in a paper titled On Some Morbid Appearances of the Absorbent Glands in Spleen. That's a nice paper title. Yeah. It wasn't named after him until 33 years later, when a British physician, Samuel Wilkes, rediscovered the disease. Hodgkin's lymphoma causes enlargement of the tissue, spleen, and liver, with many other tissue and with invasion of other tissues. A more benign form is called Hodgkin's paragranuloma, while the more invasive form is called Hodgkin's sarcoma. He is one of the earliest defenders of preventative medicine, means of promoting and preserving health in a book in 1841. He also first described acute appendicitis, the biconcave format of red blood cells, and the striation of muscle fibers. He died of dysentery at 67 in Jaffa, Ottoman Palestine. I actually did not know that uh, there was such thing as Hodgkin's um, disease until uh, who was there was a famous celebrity that recently uh, had that disease, and the Australian media went really nuts over that whole story. Really? Okay, yeah, it was I? I don't know. That was Delta Goodrum. That's right. She was, She had that bout of Hodgkin's disease, and the Australian media went really crazy about it. I feel like it's pretty um, common. Okay. Yeah, she was uh, dot. Uh, so in 2003, at the age of 18, she was diagnosed with Hodgkinson's lymphoma, and since 2002, she suffered from a head-to-toe rash, fatigue, weight loss, night sweats, and a lump on her neck. Okay. I say for remembrances on the we have the death of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. He was born Prince Philip of Greece and Denmark on the 10th of June, 1921. He was the husband of uh, the Queen Elizabeth II, serving with the Mediterranean Pacific fleets in World War II. He was a pretty pretty, pretty busy guy. Oh, yeah. He was a patron, president, or member of 780 organizations. He retired from royal duties on the 2nd of 2017, age 96, having completed 22,290 engagements, and 5,493 speeches since 1952. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of speeches and engagements. Dang. Yeah, he had his blunders, but at the same time, he's also a bit of a funny guy. I I love that photo of him where he's dressed up as a 
um, palace guard and um, the queen's walked past and realized who it is and just cracked up. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, that's a, I'm going to see that picture now. Oh, yeah, I see it. I see it. That, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if this, like, though it does bring into question, um, obviously, Queen's getting older as well, whether the British royal family will last much longer or if the uh, if the UK will become a republic. Oh, no. What, remember, remember the last time Australia went into the whole republic thing? I think it was a Gough Whitlam that tried to do the whole... Um, Yes, we should get away from the. We should be a republic and failed miserably. Yeah, yeah. There was um the referendum onto our f- famous birthdays on the fifth of April, nineteen fifty-one. We have Dean Kamen, an American engineer, inventor, and businessman. He's known for inventing the Segway. <laughs> he holds over one thousand patents. Have you ever ridden a Segway, DJ? I've seen people uh, deck themselves. Yeah, on the Segway. I mean, they're surprisingly easy to ride. I got to ride one obstacle course at a science museum once. Like they're easier than you'd think they would be, but you know, you can definitely make mistakes. In fact, one of the uh, Segway founders died in a um, Segway riding accident. Yeah, that's right. He uh, he He ran off a cliff while trying to go around, like trying to go off the path to let someone pass. It's like not funny, really. I know, but it's pretty tragic. You know, he's trying to be a nice guy, and he dies for it. But still, like, it's just why, <laughs> why? Although I, I will, I do have to ask though, which is more funny to look uh, to see people fall off from segways or hoverboards? Hoverboards, because segways look like something that you know, like a sensible machine. You've got the handlebars, but hoverboards just look dangerous. <laughs> Dean also invented the uh, first drug infusion pump under the name Auto Syringe and an all-terrain electric wheelchair known as the iBot, which was based around tech that later turned up in the Segway. Oh, could you imagine the iBot in the in the middle of a war in the middle of the war zone? That would have been awesome. Yeah, he also co-invented a compressed air device. That would launch a human into the air to launch SWAT teams and emergency workers to the roofs of totally inaccessible buildings. Imagine just jet-powered cops, jet-packed cops. <laughs> oh, that would be absolutely funny. Just like, he's getting away. Don't worry, I'll catch him. And just turn on the jetpack. Yes, so um, he also worked on the Decker arm system, a.k.a. Luke. A prosthetic arm replacement. Yeah, that was that was the one we talked about the uh, the the arm that has feelings. Yeah, he's had a he's been around a lot. And for our adventure interest this week, fifth of April, nineteen fifty eight, Ripple Rock was destroyed. It was an underwater rock threatening navigation in the Seymour Narrows in Canada. It was the largest non nuclear controlled explosion of the time. First discovered by George Vancouver in one. Uh, the area was called one of the vilest stretches of water in the world. Well, first discovered by, you know, there were probably Native Americans living there. Um, the first known large ship to hit the rock was the sidewheel steamer Saranac in 1875. From 1955 until 1958, a free shift operation involving an average of 75 men 
worked to build 150 metres of vertical shaft from Ward Island, 720 metres of horizontal shaft to the base of the rock, and two main vertical shafts up into the Twin Peaks. At the time, it cost uh, $2,639,000. They placed 1,270 metric tonnes of Nitromex 2H explosive in the shafts, uh, 10 times the amount needed for a similar explosion above water. The blast shot 635,000 metric tons of water, spewing debris 300 meters in the air, <laughs> landing it on either on dry land either side of the narrows. Oh, thank God! Yeah, it was a successful uh, event, though, increasing the clearance to about 14 meters. I love the the picture from the Wikipedia page. That's a big boom. And th- and that is how you do a very controlled explosion. Unlike what happened a couple of years back when they tried to blast a whale. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that? Remember how that panned out? Yeah, that didn't go well. And for our ridiculous movie this week. Oh, 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 oh before, we go to, before we go to the next one, my favorite bit in that whole explosion was in 2000, what happened in 2008? <laughs> when they had the commemorative blast. They set off another bomb for the uh, for rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in 2008, Campbell River celebrated the 50th anniversary of the blast with a commemorative blast done by the Vancouver Special Effects Company. <laughs> I'm like, damn. Yes, we've had first explosion. What about second explosion? <laughs> so for our wacky movie this week, we have on the 5th of April 2013 in Belgium, the release of Antiviral. In the near future, a thriving industry sells celebrity illnesses to their fans. <laughs> Just buy the bath water, it'll be cheaper. <laughs> oh, remember how that how that was a thing? And <laughs> yeah, world's weird. <laughs> it was directed by Brandon Cronenberg, son of David Cronenberg, and inspired by a viral infection he once had, <laughs> specifically while he was in a fever dream. <laughs> and I like how uh, it was further shaped when. He was. He saw an interview with Sarah Michelle Gellar, like sneezing and sneezing and coughing at, at the audience. Does <laughs> and it everyone started say that cheering. she actually sneezed on them? No, she, uh, it just says she said she was sick, and if she sneezed, she'd infect the whole audience, and everyone cheered. <laughs> yeah, I think that's how he puts it. Yep. Yeah, celebrities are weird. Yeah, celebrity worship is a weirdo, though. Yeah, I'm. I guess we shouldn't be surprised that this came from David Cronenberg's son. <laughs> so DJ, do you have a recommendation for a TNC podcast this week? Uh, so Tim Hall, famous for his other podcast, Therapy for Monsters, has now released a new podcast into the world called Wellspring Academy. And basically, the story goes, before a person is born, all their emotions head off to Wellspring Academy, School for Emotional Understanding. There, they learn all about themselves so they can be their best emotions ever for when their their person is born. Created by an experienced family counsellor, this podcast is designed to take you and your child, or maybe just you and your inner child, on a journey on emotional and personal discovery using the principles of acceptance and commitment therapy. Well, that's definitely different to what he's done before, but yeah, should be worth checking out. Therapy for Monsters is pretty good. Therapy for Monsters is a little comedy thing where he uh, invites bad guys from books and movies 
including GLaDOS from Portal. <laughs> and then, you know, does these therapy sessions where he's like, do you think the reason people don't like you is that you can <laughs> But that's all we have for this week. DJ, where can they find you? Uh, they can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, that's not canon.com, we have an archive of our old episodes, and YouTube, where we are currently building a library of funny content. Yeah, so uh, look after yourself, stay hydrated, and we will see you next. See you guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.